Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, so exciting to be here with all of you as we gather together again to celebrate the realities of who God is and what He's doing, as well as to be inspired by the extraordinary story of God, the gospel, and then to live out of that inspiration, to live our lives in view of and informed by the reality of the gospel. We have been traveling through the book of Acts over the last few years uh, as we came out of the gospels and, and that out of the Old Testament. And in the book of Acts, we are with Paul. Paul is on his third uh, church planting missionary journey. Uh, we are with Paul in Macedonia. He is writing a letter from Macedonia to the church in Corinth that he planted during his second church planting journey. And this would be the third letter that he's writing to them. The first letter he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians, was a letter that really was extremely practical in its instruction, talking a lot about the outward expressions of our inner reality, of the inner uh, information of what it means to know the gospel and know Jesus. So he was saying, since you know what you know, then surely our outward life shouldn't look this way, but this way. He wasn't saying, live this way so you can make God happy. He was saying, since you know what you know, uh, why, why would you live this way and not that way? So a letter dealing with a lot of practical, uh, outward expressions of what it means to be the church. And it was good. And then the second letter we know was written from the context of 2 Corinthians, uh, but we don't have access to it. It wasn't for us. It was only for the church in Corinth. Otherwise, it would have been included. Uh, the third letter, 2 Corinthians, uh, is what we're in now. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing from Macedonia, and he really is clearing the air with the church in Corinth because he's planning a visit to them, and things didn't go well the last visit. So he's really just saying, hey, Let's just make sure on the same page, let's clear the air. Let me clear up a few things uh, with you. Now, as we've encountered this letter and we've di uh, we, we, we dived into it, what we have discovered is one of the most extraordinary unpackings of the inner realities that inform us about how we should live. The gospel. This is a letter so rich with gospel realities that are, are happening, so rich with the information that should inform us about how we live and, and why, we, why we think the way we do, we act the way we do. And it has been a beautiful experience. Uh, Paul has spent a great deal of time on grace uh, the key factor uh, in making us who we are and, and having us live as we are. It feels like we've been dipped into grace and just immersed in it, right? God's grace toward us that is now available to us to extend to others. To you be grace from God and peace. We can give God's grace because he's given it to us. Our grace we can extend to others because, because we are recipients of God's grace. And so that in of itself is an expanded version of us just giving God's grace, but we can also give our grace. And all of this because we have discovered who we are. We are the children of God, the aroma of Christ. We actually carry the reality of Christ's love and redemption to the world. We carry it in us because we are recipients of it and we are also carriers of it. So we are the aroma of Christ. And as we walk out into the world that is a difficult, challenging world with a lot of junk in it, we are reminded that as we walk in that world, though in our circumstances daily, we may not experience the victory of belonging to Christ, that ultimately we are in a victory march with him, because why? 
We know where this ends. He has not only rescued our soul, not only restored our purpose as uh, image bearers of God, uh, the aroma of Christ, but he has promised a redeemed future in which we will live. And so we know our future is right and good on every way, even when today isn't, right? And then in that we find extraordinary hope, despite the junkiness of this planet some days and some weeks, months, and years. And we live out of that hope in great boldness. So this is, this is just what we've covered in the first four and a half chapters, right? It's crazy. And it's so much fun to enter into this. As Paul is bringing to us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these wondrous, beautiful descriptors of how the gospel functions, we must not forget that he's really doing this while writing a simple letter to people in Corinth defending some misperceptions that they have of him because some people have stirred stuff up. So how wondrous is that? He's just writing a letter saying, you misunderstand that. I didn't do that for that reason. I did it for this. And this is how that works. And this is why you thought that. And in all of that, the gospel is just bleeding out everywhere. So that's pretty awesome. Now, the reason it's important for us to remember that this is just a letter going to the church in Corinth defending some position is because it helps us understand the sequence of the letter and where Paul goes next. You see, Paul is about to change directions uh, into really directing his energy toward the church in Corinth now and their response after four, uh, five and a half chapters of really defending his position with the gospel. But before he does that, what we're going to deal with today, I'm so excited, is almost Paul going like this. After I've unpacked all these different things for you, let me just, let me just, let me just tell you this. Here's what I'm going to do. I just want to explain to you why I do what I do. That's what Paul's about to do. I'm just gonna sum it up. I just wanna explain to you why I do what I do so that you no longer have these misperceptions as to what I'm doing because people are stirring you up. So let's grab our Bibles and go and take a look at what Paul's about to do, inspired by the Spirit of God through his extraordinary power. We're gonna turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and just to make sure we place ourselves in the context in which we're in, we're going to start where we left off last week, if you were here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. And it says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This was not uh, an issue of judgment as much as an issue of as we live our lives as the aroma of Christ, let us not get caught up in living our lives for this world, but let's live our lives for the kingdom of God because what we do here does have bearing on where we stand then in terms of uh, the way that we lived either for our kingdom or for God's kingdom. So he really ends this by saying there is a sense that what you do today matters to eternity. It matters to the kingdom of God. So don't forget that and don't just live for the temporal. Now right out of that, here's what Paul says next in verse 11. Therefore, okay, so stop right there. Whenever we see the word therefore, what must we conclude immediately? That Paul is connecting what he's about to say to what he just said, okay? Always make that connection, otherwise it makes no sense. You don't start a sentence with therefore unless you're saying, in light of what I've just said, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. There is an immediate connection. So Paul says, since we know 
that the life we live now matters to eternity now and not just to the temporal life we live, that's going to, that's going to make a shift, a change. And look what he says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord here describing really the, essentially the whole story of God. Remember, there is a verse in the Old Testament that says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord represents the full picture, the full clarity of God. There is a God. He did create us. We matter to him, and what we do matters in his kingdom, and so we suddenly come awake to the fact that we're not the God, right? So he's saying, since we know the fear of the Lord, we know we're not the gods, he is, and our lives matter to his story, that should change some things, shouldn't it? And look what he says. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Folks, listen. (laughs) If you want to take a single sentence in all of the Bible that ultimately lays out how our lives work now, it's right here. You just heard the entire essence of what it means to be a Christ follower in one sentence right here. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's it. That's the whole deal. You think there's going to be all this more, but that's it. I could literally go, thank you so much for coming. It was great to have you guys. Today's a short church service because you know all that you need to know now. If you follow Jesus, this is how it plays. Since we have been uh, 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 confronted with and changed by and have discovered the wonder of the gospel of Jesus, we live our lives now to demonstrate and to display and to declare those wonders to the world. It doesn't matter what relationship you're in. It doesn't matter what uh, circumstance you're in. It doesn't matter what resource dynamic you're in. All of those things are means by which we do what we were made to do, which is what? To show the world the gospel. Since I know what I know, Paul says, I now go and do this. I persuade others. What else is there to do on this planet than to persuade others of the wonders that we have discovered in Christ? Now, he's not saying, I go make them believe. I go, I go beat them until they believe. I, I convert them to this. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not doing any of that. I just go persuade them. I persuade them how? Now, he's going to unpack that. He's going to unpack that our persuading is not just an articulate display of being more right or more intelligent or better at what we say than someone else. It is an entire life we live that now persuades the world of the truths and realities of Christ because we believe them so deeply because they have so changed us that it is the only way we can live. And people go, wow, that's amazing because they see Christ in us. Watch, he's going to go on. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. Here's where Paul clues us in to the fact that he has all along in 2 Corinthians and now perhaps in summary form saying, what I'm trying to do is lay out for you the motive of my heart in my actions toward you so that you would have an answer to those who are accusing me by outward appearances that you don't know why they happened. You see what he's saying? 
He's saying, these people that have been stirring things up in Corinth have been pointing out things about me. You see how Paul did this? And you see when Paul went nuts over here? And you see when Paul said these things? And you see when Paul wrote that? Oh, he, he, he did that to manipulate you. He's nuts. He's crazy in the head. He's doing, and he's saying, look, I'm writing this because God knows exactly why I do what I do. God knows I live to persuade others because I'm so compelled, so convinced, so utterly changed and controlled by the love of Christ that I do this. And you ought to know it too. And I'm not sharing this with you so that I can elevate myself and say, look at me, I'm so caught up by Jesus, I compel others to do it. I'm telling you this so that when these, these people stirring things up, try to stir things up, you have an answer for them. I know exactly why Paul did that. Because of this, this, and this. This is what goes on inside of Paul. So Paul is trying to give us the motive for his zealous attitude toward the gospel. And this should be great for us because it should stir in us where our motive should be born as well and draw us into that. So Paul says, I'm not trying to elevate myself. I'm just trying to give you an answer for why I do what I do. Because one of the things that the people in Corinth had accused Paul of is that he was completely out of his mind. They actually said that to the church in Corinth. Now, it wouldn't be hard to convince people that Paul was out of his mind. Here's why. Remember, Paul had quite a passion about him. Remember that? I mean, you remember when Paul was with Peter back in the book of Acts and Peter was having a meal with the Jews and he wasn't allowing the Gentiles to hang because he was like, eh, I, I, he didn't want to eat with the Gentiles because he's like, I don't know if I can eat that food. And it was after God had revealed the freedom of the gospel. And you remember Paul stormed out of one house, down the road, in the dust, slammed through the door and in front of everybody confronted Peter. Peter, like the Peter that was on the boat, walked on water, that Peter. Paul stormed in the house. He's like, Pete, what are you doing? you know better. This is the gospel. What, what on earth? Paul was not a, a guy that generally when he got excitable uh, was just kind of chilled. And so I can imagine that Paul oftentimes when he was in, in that zone where he's in Corinth on the streets and he's preaching the gospel. Because remember when he went to Corinth in the early days and the church hadn't existed yet, he was preaching the gospel in a hostile environment. And God said to him, stay here. I promise they won't beat you to death this time. He actually told him that, right? And so uh, when Paul was preaching in Corinth to a city that was like the modern-day Vegas, you can imagine he probably seemed a little crazy and overzealous, right? And so they accused Paul of being nuts. Sometimes he's normal over a table with you. Sometimes he's, ah! and then the guy's crazy. And so Paul's going to go, listen, God knows why I do that, and you ought to as well. So you can give an answer to these people. But since you might not know what it is, allow me to show you. Watch, Paul goes on. And he actually tells them why he is this way. Look at this. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. I love it. Paul's like, he's not even denying it. He's like, did I seem crazy in Corinth? Oh, sure, I, I seem crazy in Corinth. If I was beside myself, do you know what the word beside myself or the saying beside myself means? That's when you're like totally panicked, you're not thinking straight, and you look like a crazy human being, right? We usually get beside ourselves when we either get really bad news or something's happened and we can't quite get it figured out. We're like, what's going on? Somebody, quick, fix it. Or we get beside ourselves when news is so exciting that we don't even Facebook it. We drive over to the person's house and tell them person to person. Wow! It's greater than Facebook. That's when we say we're beside ourselves, right? I'm so beside myself. And so Paul says, listen, if you remember when I was in Corinth and I was a little beside myself, I want you to know I was beside myself because of God. 
See, what Paul's saying is, I was so impassioned, so compelled, so overwhelmed by the reality that I discovered in Christ. How could I help myself but to come to Corinth and to scream and shout at you guys all the time? I'll go home some days and my wife will say to me, you shouted the whole message. You got, you, you got to bring it down. And I'm like, I was excited. Right? So was, I may seem crazy. But it's, it's, this is really exciting stuff. And so Paul says, that's what's going on. When I am out of my mind, so-called, so, so or when I'm beside myself, it is for God. It's not for you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to compel you. I'm just really, really excited. And then Paul says, and when I'm chilled, when I'm, when I'm logical, when I'm not screaming and shouting, and we're having a good conversation, that's for you. Because there's a space in which I'm not just screaming and shouting, the gospel's wonderful, we're sitting and we're dialoguing. So Paul says, the things I did in Corinth, I did for God out of what God had done for me, and I did for you. You see what Paul's doing is beautifully unpacking what was happening when he was in Corinth and why it was happening. Why was it happening? Let's go back there. Because Paul discovered the fear of the Lord, and he now does what? He now persuades others. Now watch, watch what Paul says next. For if we're beside ourselves, it is for God, and uh, we, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. There it is. You see what he just did? We act this way, we are crazy this way, because we are controlled by the love of Christ. I love that the ESV transfer, uh, translated this, this word, controlled by the love of Christ. Some translations will translate it compelled. The words are very close, but I like this word, right? It's, it, it almost feels bigger than compelled, doesn't it? I am controlled by the love of Christ. Paul will write, later on write to the church in Rome, in the, in the letter of Romans, he will say, we were once slaves to sin, but we are now enslaved by righteousness. We are enslaved, we are not free. And so here's the cool part, this is what we say. You are no longer free, you are enslaved to freedom. <laughs> you can't even run away from freedom. How awesome is that? The gospel enslaves you and me to the freedom of Christ so that we can't run from it when we want to. So we can't destroy ourselves. That is an incredible slavery. And he says we are controlled by the love of Christ now. So our lives are an unfolding story of the love of Christ. Now watch this. Look what he says. For the love of Christ controls us because, here it is, we have concluded this. What have we concluded? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's a little bit of a complicated sentence, right? There's lots of people dying, and they're dying for different people and different reasons, and we're not quite sure who. But it's actually really simple if you just follow the sequence. He starts by saying this, we know that one has died for all, and so we now know that all have died. What does he mean by that, okay? Seems odd that Jesus would have died for all, and now all died. That's not what he's saying. You see, before Christ came, before the revelation of the full redemptive story of God that he sent Jesus to rescue the human, uh, the human story and rescue our souls, the people had the law of God and the sacrificial system, and the law gave them a space in which they would live righteously, even though we will find out in Romans that the law was weakened by our sinful nature so we could not live by it, so we were still condemned. 
And the sacrificial system was given to ultimately guard the people of God until he could fully redeem the story through Jesus to give us a space in which we could still travel with God though we were not fully redeemed, okay? So the people thought rightly that it was through the sequence of the law and the sacrificial system that we were keeping ourselves alive, right? So we were not dead, we were alive if we were the people of God and we were following the law. What Paul is saying here is when we discovered that one had died for, here's the key, all, we discovered that who was dead? All, all needed Jesus. You see, there was this idea before that Jesus died for the Jews, not the Gentiles, because the Jews were righteous and he was their Messiah. Some believed that. Uh, some believed, well, he came to die for the Gentiles to save them because the Jews were already good. And he's saying, what we discovered was that when Jesus died, he died for all because who was dead? All were dead. He'll later on write to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he will say, for we have all died. We are all dead in our transgressions, he will say. We are all dead in our transgressions. So this is a beautiful, I mean, it's the, it's the entire gospel in one sentence. Who does that? He goes, look, here's what we discovered. Why are we so compelled and controlled by Christ's love? Why do we persuade others? Why do we live the way we do? Because here's what we discovered. Jesus came and died for all because all needed him. All were dead. Now, it'd be one thing if Jesus came and died only to tell us that we're all dead. Wouldn't that be sad? Okay, you thought the law was working. It's not. I died to tell you you're all dead. Sorry. But the verse doesn't end there, does it? He says, when he died for all, we figured out that all were dead. And then we figured out that he died and those who come alive in him because of his death, they are now invited no longer to live for themselves like they were living before, but to live for his kingdom. So he not only rescues our soul, he not only restores our, uh, I mean, uh, redeems our future, but he also restores our created purpose to image him. So he died so that you might have life, and then in that life, so that you might live for him and not for yourself, because in living for him, you discover your created purpose, and you are filled with life, and you don't lose life. There's the entire gospel in another sentence. He's done it twice in one paragraph. It's crazy. Sorry, this is really, really cool for me. All right, look at this. So he says this, look at this. From now on, therefore, verse 16. Now, stop here. So, sorry, there's so much here. I love this because up to now, we've always encountered the, world, the word therefore, right? Paul just kind of moves from one sentence to the next and he goes, therefore this and therefore that. So you know he's tying to the, to the last thought. But on this particular occasion, I've searched. I haven't found anywhere else that he does this. There may be a place. I haven't done a full search. It, it kind of struck me uh, this morning and I'm like, I wonder if he says it anywhere else and I haven't found it. So, so check this out. In this particular place, he says, from now on, therefore. Don't you love that addition? It's like Paul is saying, what we discovered here is so big. It's so big that it's not just a therefore anymore. It's a from now on therefore. He's saying this therefore will never change. Because we discovered the gospel, it is from now on therefore. You can never walk away from this therefore. Because what we discovered is always, and so therefore, what we're about to do is always. I love that. He's just like, from now on considering this truth from now on therefore therefore what therefore what you might expect he says therefore we persuade others because that's where he started right take a look at what he says from now on therefore we 
regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does that mean? Like that's not, that's unexpected. I mean, it, it, it is to me, like of all the, the from now on therefores you could have said, you're like, we no longer regard people by the flesh. I, I don't understand. So as you dig into this, this is, this is so cool, right? So before Christ came again, let's go back to how humans lived and how the people of God lived. There was the law and there was the sacrificial system. And everything functioned by how righteously you engaged in the law, how rightly you engaged in it, and when you didn't, how quickly you met the requirements of the law and, and the sacrifices so that you could be made right again. So we were regarding one another prior to Christ by the righteousness in which we lived, right? Now we still do that. We secretly pretend we don't, but we do. We live in judgment of each other all the time. You and I walk into situations, conversations, even the clothes we wear we're comparing oh man that's a nicer than mine and oh they, uh, everything we do is an evaluation of where we stand based on the human beings around us we live in a constant sense of regarding one another by our behaviors by our words by our outward appearances it's what we do by what we would call the flesh I evaluate your life by what you're doing and then I I regard you a certain way so what that means is this I am either very impressed with your righteousness or I am shocked with your unrighteousness. See that? And we all live there, folks. We, we really all do. When we come into our churches, we come into our churches and the very first time you visit, if you come from another church and you were somebody there, then you bring the bigger Bible with you the first time to church, don't you? you get, and, and, and you have it fall open on the highlight pages. Now, you don't do that on purpose. But secretly in our souls, it happens, doesn't it? And you make sure in the conversation somewhere you just state that you, you came from another place and you were once an elder there, right? Now, we don't do that stuff diabolically. It's in us. It's we regard one another according to the flesh. And so what we do is we try to evaluate based on your righteousness where you land on the spectrum. Now, we know the gospel, so we're not saying you, you're good with God or not because of that. We know better, but we still regard each other that way, don't we? And here's what Paul says. After I discovered the gospel and the extraordinary impossible grace of God, I will no longer regard humans by their righteousness or unrighteousness. I will no longer make a, a decision about where you land either by how impressed I am with your righteousness or how unimpressed I am with your unrighteousness. Or, or shocked rather, not unimpressed. So what a freedom that is. Isn't that amazing? Stop pretending. We should not regard each other in these things. And what that sets us free to do is to engage in one another's lives in our righteousness and our unrighteousness from a very, very new perspective. Instead of saying, I'm regarding you by your righteousness or unrighteousness, I now just simply engage with you based on how foolish or how wise you're being, and I invite you back into journey with God. I'm not judging you. I'm not, I'm not assessing you. I'm journeying with you. This is what Paul says. He says we used to regard Christ in the same way. We would watch him and like, oh yeah. Because remember Paul regarded Christ as a rabbi and then a danger to the whole system. And he goes, once he kind of rose from the dead, that changed. Once he came back, met me on the road to Damascus, made me blind and said a few things to me, I no longer regard Christ by the flesh. But in the discovery of the gospel, I no longer regard anyone by the flesh. Do you see what I'm saying? Now look, now what he's gonna do 
is he's going to explain to us how that translates, and he's going to start in the one another's. Since you belong to a body here, here's how you now regard one another, those who are in Christ. Take a look. Look at, look at what he says. So we no longer regard anyone by the flesh, Christ neither. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, look, when we regard one another, not in the flesh, but in the gospel, then we know something. For those of us that know Jesus, we automatically assume that if you know Jesus, that therefore I'm regarding you in the grace of God that he gave you, not in your behavior. Now, does that mean I should ignore foolish behavior in you? No, does that mean I should, I should say whatever you do is okay because you're in Jesus? No, 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 no. It means I don't judge you by that behavior. I engage with you as a what? A minister of reconciliation in the journey because that's who I'm made to be and that's who you're made to be. See, as ministers of reconciliation, we are now called to bring the gospel to bear, the good news of Jesus, the message of Christ, the reality of Christ. We're brought, brought to bear where? On one another and on the world. On one another we do it because we are already reconciled to Christ and when we're behaving as though we're not, we ought to say, what you doing? Kind of like what Paul said, if you already know Jesus and you already know your soul is rescued, your future redeemed, and your purpose restored, why are you living for this planet? Why are you living for yourself? You already know this. It's not that we're reconciling one another back to God because we lost our reconciliation. We're reconciling one another back to what we already know so we can live in wisdom and freedom and not in foolishness and destruction and bondage. So when we regard one another, let us remember that we are regarding one another not by the impressiveness of our righteousness or the shock and awe of our unrighteousness, but by the extraordinary, impossible graciousness of God. And then we are free to be ourselves with one another and free to engage with one another in our behaviors without being judgmental, but being encouraging and challenging so that we can behave in a manner worthy of the gospel because we are helping one another. Oh, but we're not done. That's just us. Look, Paul goes on. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, oh, here it is. Now he's going to describe what the ministry of reconciliation is. Now, this is key. Pay attention. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is masterfully now going to remind us of our part in the story versus God's part in the story. Because we always get this confused, folks. We get confused who's judge and who's called to, to love and, 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 and to care for and to serve the world. And we get confused who's supposed to convert and who's supposed to save and who's supposed to convince and who's supposed to compel. Okay, so here's what we always think. We think we are judge, jury, and executioner. We do. We love it. Once we've come to know Jesus, and then we have righteousness now, we go into the world, and we measure them by the flesh and their unrighteousness, and we tell them clearly and abundantly, and if they don't believe, we keep trying till they do, because if they don't, they're in trouble. And this is not what God says. He didn't say, I have made you reconcilers of men to God now. Go do it. 
they're lost, you better go find them. He doesn't say that. He says this, we are ministers of reconciliation, that is, that God, listen now, is reconciling man to himself. Who's doing the reconciling? You can say it, it's okay. It's a clear answer, it's not a trick question. God, I'll say it again, who's doing the reconciling? God, we're not, we're not doing the reconciling. What are we? We have been given, it says it right there, the message of reconciliation. We are the messengers, folks. We carry the message of God. We live the message of God. We bring the message of God, which sets us free from having to get it right every second because it's not our job to try to convince anyone or rather to convert anyone. It is simply our job to compel, to convince, to to persuade by the reality of the message we carry. But let God do the converting. Let God do the changing and transforming. You can't anyways because it is God reconciling us to himself, not us reconciling others to God. The ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, is not to reconcile anyone to God. It is to compel, to to convince, to persuade people to be reconciled to God. And then let God do what God does. It is a beautiful freedom. We are to serve the world so that they would know the love of Christ. And then we are to persuade the world through our service and through our declaration of the gospel and through our passion for the gospel and through being beside ourselves with the wonder of the gospel that they would see the beauty of Christ. Now watch, Paul goes on, look at this. Therefore, there's the last therefore in this passage, I think like five of them, I love it. It's like because of this, therefore that, because of this, therefore that, because of this, therefore that, and from now on, therefore, right? And now he goes, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now I love this, it's as though Paul goes, Renaud told you once that it's not your job to reconcile anyone, it's your job to make the appeal, to be the messenger, but I want Renaud to say it again. It's almost like the Spirit of God told Paul to say it twice so I could say it twice, okay? Watch this, look at this, look at this, it's beautiful. God making his appeal through us. So who's making the appeal? God, who's he doing it through? Us, are we participants in making the appeal? Yes, but he's doing it through us, not us doing it for him. It's beautiful. God's doing the reconciling. We carry the message and we display it. God's making the appeal. We are simply the vessels by which he has allowed that appeal to be made. We are privileged to participate in the story. Now, now this is so cool. As though Paul knew through the Holy Spirit that the temptation would be this. He says something extraordinary next. Watch this. See, the temptation, once you discover this truth and this freedom, is, is this. Since God's making the appeal and God's doing the reconciling and I get to participate, but if I don't, God still gets it done, then when I'm a little nervous or, or I, I don't really want it, I just kind of bail because God's got it covered. I see this all the time. When people discover that it is not up to them to bring people to Jesus, it's up to them to live their lives in a beautiful manner so people would be convinced and compelled by our lives and see Christ in us, we often abandon the idea of evangelism because we're like, God's, God's got it, God's got it. So I'm, when, I, when I get the chance, I'll certainly, I'll certainly do something, but there's so much going on and it, and it is a little difficult. So look what Paul does next, as though to literally defy that ideology, look what he says next. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, and look at the next sentence, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Don't you love that? It's literally like Paul saying, since God is making his appeal through us, what should our very next active action be? To make an appeal. To make an appeal because we have no lose. God's doing the work. We get to be part of it. So go make your appeal. Uh, we implore you, he says. It's, it's another version of saying, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Our lives in the dailiness that we live, in the wrestles that we're in, in the circumstances we encounter, in the mess we find ourselves in, or in the beauty we find ourselves in, our lives ought to constantly be an appeal to the people around us to see the wonders of Christ and how it measures our lives when hopelessness enters that we still yet have hope, when, when, when affliction comes that we still yet have strength, when things don't go our way that we still yet believe not because we are strong or not because we are full of faith or not because we have great hope in of ourselves. It is because we have discovered the hope of Christ. And people ought to look at our lives, our, our relationships, our circumstances, our resources in whatever challenge or beauty they find themselves in and go, wow. It just, it just seems like there's something big in you that measures you. It's not that you don't grieve. Oh, you grieve. You grieve hard. It's not that you don't feel heavy. It's not that you're not honest with the emotions that run. It's not that you don't get angry. It's that somehow it comes out differently and it informs and measures differently. They ought to see that in us. And that is only going to be true if we are indeed compelled, controlled by the love of Christ. So where does this begin? Where does this always begin? If we are going to live our lives to persuade others, we persuade them because we, he said it in the first sentence, we know the fear of the Lord, right? If we are persuading others because we feel obligated by God to do it and it's the right thing to do, it will not last long and it will not sustain. But when we are compelled by the love of Christ, then we persuade others because we are so overwhelmed by his wonder. And that's where Paul ends this paragraph so beautifully after this extraordinary unpacking. Look what he says. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did it again. The entire gospel in a third sentence. Three sentences in one paragraph with the entire gospel in all three sentences. How does he do it? I want to be Paul. So here he stops right again with us and says, this entire life that I have laid out for you, it only works with sentence one and sent the last sentence in this paragraph. Because I know the fear of God. Because I know Jesus became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. Because he is who he is and he did what he did. I am controlled by his love. And so yes, I'm a little overzealous. Yes, I'm a little beside myself. Yes, I'm going to get into your life and I might uh, on occasion say some things that seem like I'm trying to convert you, but, but I, I'm not. I, I am trying to compel, to persuade because what I want you to see is what I have seen and it has changed everything. And this is the life we get to live. I don't know what circumstances you're in. I don't know what relational dynamics here, and I, d I don't know what resource realities you live in. For some of you, this very morning is a heavy, heavy morning. You come in here with giant circumstances that feel like they're going to rob you of all hope and all faith and all, uh, and, and, and all life. 
Some of you are coming here with the most elated circumstances. And they are real, and they measure us in big ways, and they affect us in big ways. But when we know Christ, they both become incredible spaces in which to discover the grace of God more deeply than ever, and in where we can make the grace of God known more beautifully than ever because we have a hope that is not temporal but eternal, because we have the knowledge of the gospel, and the knowledge of the gospel is for all, because Christ died for all, for, because all have died. And those who discover Christ and live in him no longer live for themselves, but live for the kingdom of God in a restored purpose in the freedom of the gospel. This is our life. How awesome is that? Let's pray. God, thank you for this extraordinary and wondrous reality in which we live. That you have come to become sin for us so that we might no longer live in sin but be the righteousness of God. Not by our outward behaviors in some way making us right, but by your inward rescue of our soul. Then affecting the process of our outward behaviors aligning with the reality of what you and you alone have done for us. May we be stirred up to be a people group, followers of Jesus, who live among those who you've allowed us to participate in life in a manner demonstrating the great hope we have in Christ, not in some fake and ridiculous way throwing around cliche statements to make big things better, but to live in the depths of pain and grief and challenge, but with a lightness and wonder and freedom and hope because we know what you have done and we know what that means for our future and for our present. Send us, God, into our city to become agents of freedom, of life and light as ambassadors for you so that you might make your appeal to mankind through us as we carry you in action and in word to the world around us. God, stir up in us such a vision of the gospel that we would be beside ourselves in carrying it to the world. We love you, Jesus.